0: You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week, we're continuing our study of the one-another passages we're calling Life in the Family. With this week's message, here's education pastor, Nolan Smith.
1: Throughout the world, throughout history, there have been some some buildings, some architecture that I would say uh, inspires awe. And when I think of examples of this, the first that comes to my mind would be the Great Pyramids of Giza. So we've got got the pyramids, and you look at those, and and obviously one of the things that that a lot of people will talk about is the the theories as to how they got these huge stones into place. How did they move them? How did they cut them? These perfect angles. And you look at those, and then you start learning about kind of the, the, the placement relation to each other and the stars. And there's all kinds of mystery around how these things were built. And then you look at something like the Great Wall of China, maybe not as aesthetically interesting, but, but certainly impressive that somebody, uh, all these people that had to, to work together to build this, and that it that expands across this vast amount of land and protects an entire country. I, I mean, it really is impressive to see something that, that massive. And then you look at something like the Taj Mahal. And to me, this is a very, very artistic thing, and, and, and what stands out for me, when I look at it, is the symmetry and how perfectly symmetrical. You've got even independent structures that are, that are perfectly aligned and symmetrical to each other. And, and the fact that it was built some 400 years ago, you know, prior to, to modern technology, if you built that today, I'd think it was pretty impressive. But to have built that so long ago is, is really crazy. And then, and then we see something like the, the Colosseum in Rome. And I have to tell you, when I go to a modern stadium, that's like a football or a baseball stadium, and I go to something that was built, you know, recently, I go to those places and I'm like, I don't know how they build this. Like these things are, these things are massive and you could fit all those people inside and it doesn't just fall down. I mean, that's, that's crazy. And, and so to think they did this thousands of years ago and this one I think is far more, more artistic and, and beautiful and, and, and to imagine being somebody who maybe lived as like a farmer Back then, never been to the big city. You go to Rome for the first time and you see that. Man, what, what must that have been like to stand in front of something like that for the very first time? But it's not just, it's not just ancient structures. It's, it's, there's examples in the modern world. You think about the tallest building in the world, the Burj Khalifa in, in Dubai. And, and it's really not even the only impressive building in that picture. But you, you, you see these buildings, these tall skyscrapers. And, and I will tell you, I have a serious fear of heights don't like them. Don't want to go and see. People are like, you got to go to the top of these buildings and see from up there. I'm like, no, I'm, I can enjoy it from a distance. I can admire their their ability to build something like that from a distance, and I do. I think it's crazy that we we have the ability to build things that look like that, that can stand that tall, and that people can go and and work inside something like that. I and mean, that that's really incredible, and it's not just it's not just buildings, but. But things like bridges, you know, and maybe the most iconic bridge, at least in America, the Golden Gate Bridge and, and the, the size of that and the, the fact that they build this and cars drive across it every day. And, and, and for me, I, I'll say this, too, about a bridge like I don't understand how they build those things in the water. Like when they put the foundation in the water, it doesn't make sense to me. And there's probably some engineers in the room who could be like, well, it's actually a fairly simple process. They do this. And you could explain the whole thing to me, and I'd be like, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. I don't know how, I don't know how the first people that did it figured it out. I don't know how they do it today. It's crazy. Uh, but all of these things, all these structures, they're all evidence that human beings are capable of building some really impressive things. And that makes sense when you think about our design, how we were created it makes sense when you go back to the garden in Genesis 1 and you see that God, when he created human beings, he said, hey, you, you bear my image. You are going to be my representatives in this world. And so what, what I want you to do, what I'm calling you to do, he said, I want you to not only be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but I want you to subdue it. I want you to have dominion. I want you to carry on the creative work that I started, that I, I started to create here, and I want you to continue that. I want you to build things and so we probably have, have never built anything as impressive as what we see on the screen. But, but we've, we've all built something, right? And, and the people that build those things, they dedicate countless hours, even sometimes their, an entire lifetime. They, they invest themselves in something that they may work their entire lives and not even see the finished product, That may be a fraction of the overall manpower that goes into that. But people build and invest in these things. And we can build things, too. And it's not just physical structures. we can build things like businesses. We can build communities. We can build families. And as we're going to see today, we're called to build something else. We're called, as believers, we're called to build each other up. We're called to build each other up. And and we're going to see in some passages in, in Scripture today, this calling to build one another up. There's a biblical term for this idea. It's the term to edify. And, and so one biblical or one Bible dictionary offers us this, to instruct, to build up, or establish. And you think, well, that's, that's okay, that's not super descriptive. What does it mean? And, and I think Merriam-Webster actually gives us maybe a more helpful definition, to instruct and improve, especially in moral and religious knowledge. And so we're going to talk about this idea of edifying. We're going to talk about what it means to edify. We're going to see here in the scriptures what the Bible has to offer us and and how it applies to you and me. And so we're going to begin in Romans chapter 14. If you want to turn in your copy of scripture there, that's where we'll begin. Romans chapter 14. And in this passage, I have to tell you, it's a little weird what Paul is going to talk about. It's not something that's super familiar to us. Like, we're, we're not very often gonna be in a situation that's specifically what Paul's describing here because you have to understand in the ancient world, in a pagan society, something that happened a lot was there were pagan temples all over the place and, and people would go to worship at the temple and they would take meat to sacrifice at the temple. And this meat would have been the best meat that often people had to offer. They wanted to take the best meat to sacrifice to their pagan idols. And so when they do that, this meat functioned as a way to feed the priests and their families. This is a lot like what God established for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. But they would would take this meat to sacrifice, and it would feed the priests. But oftentimes, there was way more than the priest and his family needed. So a lot of what was left over would make its way to the market, and butchers would sell it at the market. And so you had a scenario where people could go to the market. They could buy meat just because they needed to eat something and wanted to feed their family, and it might have been sacrificed to pagan idols. And you have Christians who are trying to live in this society and and they're going to go to the market and and they're going to buy things like meat that may have been sacrificed to idols. And so I want you to, this is just how I picture it in my mind, so I'd invite you to kind of go with me on this like mental exercise where you picture somebody going to the market, a Christian going to the market. And for me, it kind of looks like a food court. It's probably not what it looked like in the ancient Rome. You like go to a food court and you buy a cheeseburger. And, and you're like, I'm going to go grab a cheeseburger. and sit down. I'm to eat it. And and so Paul is kind of describing a situation like this where you might go and you, you sit down to eat your burger and you look around and you see some other Christians. Maybe they go to your church. Maybe they're just people that you happen to know from somewhere else. But there, there's other Christians and they're, they're kind of looking at you funny. They're, they're confused. Like, you, you're really going to eat... The meat from the idol worship? Is that what you're about to do right now? And they're confused watching you, watching you eat this, this food. And so that's, that's the situation that we're talking about. So that's what Paul's gonna describe here as we read this. Keep that in mind. As, as we read Romans 14, beginning in verse 13, Paul says, "'Therefore, let us not pass judgment "'on one another any longer, "'but rather decide never to put a stumbling block "'or a hindrance in the way of a brother.'" I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God it's not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, and this is the important part, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. There's that idea of edifying, building one another up. Let us pursue what is good for building one another up. But he's talking about this scenario of eating this this meat and and he he says, don't don't judge one another. And you think, okay, yeah, he's talking about the people who are walking around and they they see the person eating and they're like, hey, I don't think you should do that. I don't think that's who Paul's addressing at all, though. I think Paul's addressing the one who's about to, to eat that food. I think Paul is saying, hey, they're looking at you and they're confused by the fact that you're about to eat that. Don't judge them for that. He says they are confused by it, and, and here's the thing. You don't necessarily know why they're confused. It could be because that, maybe they're, they're formerly pagan, and Paul's going to bring the same idea up in, in 1 Corinthians 8. We'll get there in just a second, but, but Paul says you know, it might be because they're formerly pagan. Maybe that's why they're confused, and, and they came out of their pagan religion. They came over to Christianity, realized that the pagan worship was wrong, and now they're Christians, and they, they see that their Christian brother or sister is about to eat meat from the, from the temples where they used to worship, and they're going, wait, I left that behind. I, I don't think this is a good idea. Maybe that's why. Maybe what I think is probably more likely here in Romans is he's got an audience that's filled with some, some former Jews, and they came out of Judaism, and they became Christians, and so there's some legalism in their background where they think, hey, you're not allowed to touch that stuff. If it's, it's ritually unclean, you can't, don't touch that. That's wrong. That's sin. And Paul says, it, for whatever reason that they think, you, you don't know where they're coming from, but don't judge them for the fact that they're confused by what you're about to do. And the idea that Paul would say, hey, you don't judge them, that's, I, I don't know, that sounds kind of counterintuitive. Paul, they're judging me. You're telling me not to judge them? That doesn't seem right. And and what Paul says here is, he says, hey, don't put a stumbling block in front of them. Remove the stumbling block. He says, if, and this is an important phrase that I think we need to to maybe remember, it's the phrase, perception is reality. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before, but Paul says, look, here's the the truth. You know and I know that 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 food that you're about to eat, there's nothing wrong with it, that, that, between you and the Lord, there's nothing wrong with you eating that food. It's, it's not unclean because you know those pagan idols aren't real and, and God doesn't forbid you from eating it. So there's nothing wrong with it in and of itself. But if one of your brothers or sisters is watching and they go, I don't know, that's, that seems unclean. He says, their perception, that is your reality. And you need to operate like that is true. Why? It's for their benefit. He says, if you are doing something, and I think the, the important thing is that you know, if you're doing something you know could be grieving, could be confusing, one of your brothers or sisters, you're no longer walking in love. So it is important for you to, to look around and see that and know that, yeah, maybe, maybe that's, that's a thing. And again, that's kind of counterintuitive. Like, we're not very comfortable with the idea that I have the ability to do something, and you're telling me I shouldn't do it? Paul says in that Romans 8 passage where he, I mean, excuse me, that 1 Corinthians passage where he brings this same issue up again, he says, hey, you might have the right to do something, but that doesn't mean that you should do it. And and for a lot of us, we go, I I don't like how that sounds because here's the thing. I'm an American and I know a thing or two about rights. And when I have a right to do something, I shouldn't, no one should stop me from doing it, especially if it's the fact that they're going to judge me for it. That doesn't seem right. I have the right to do it, so I should be able to. And Paul says, no, we shouldn't think that way. We need to recognize that there's the potential in what I'm doing for somebody else to be confused by it, for it to become a stumbling block for them and my ability to minister to them. And Paul says, if that's the case, don't do it. Don't risk that. And then you might be thinking, okay, but here's the thing. Every decision I make at some point has the potential to confuse someone. I mean, if we're talking about people judging me for something, I mean, everything I do seems like something that somebody could judge me for. So am I just not able to do anything now? And I think this is a point where we, we use something that I think is a very significant skill in the life of any maturing disciple. It's the skill of discernment. And discernment is important because when the morality of a decision isn't clear in scripture, then we must exercise discernment. When we can't be fully sure that, that scripture, you know, the Bible says a lot of things about what we can and cannot do. It's pretty clear on some issues. And yet there are a lot of things that the Bible doesn't talk about. There's a lot of scenarios in our lives that we'll be in on a daily basis and the Bible doesn't say anything specifically about it. And so we need discernment because we need to be able to say, I know what the Bible says about some things. I know the principles that are, that are there in the Bible. And it, it doesn't talk about my situation specifically, but I can apply that. I can, I can take all the context together, and I can make an informed decision about what the Bible would have me do based on what I do know. And so we use discernment. And so uh, Paul's been doing discernment this whole time. He's, he's saying, hey, look around. There might be somebody who could be, who could be confused by this. Use discernment. And, and so at this point, when we go, okay, but every decision has that potential, I think a helpful question would be: is the chance, is the chance that this could confuse or cause a stumbling block for somebody, is that chance reasonable? And that's kind of what Paul does here. It's a reasonable chance that you, in that, that scenario, in the old pagan world, it's, it's reasonable to think that if you went to that market and you bought that food, that somebody there is gonna see that and they're gonna go, I hold on, I I thought you were a Christian, and Christians aren't supposed to do that. And Paul says, look, they, they don't know that, that they have that freedom, okay? But you, by doing that, recognize that they're confused by that. And so it's a reasonable chance that you're going you're to encounter that. And so factor that in. The second question is, what is the benefit or the necessity of the thing that you're trying to do? Because is it necessary for you to go and sit down in that food court and eat that cheeseburger? I wouldn't say it's necessary. Paul says there's a reasonable chance it can confuse someone and it's not necessary for you to do it, so, so lay down that right. You could take it a step further and you could go, okay, but what if I just need to go to the market to buy any food? It doesn't have to be that, that meat that was sacrificed at pagan temples. I just need to go buy food. So what if those same people look at me and they say, hey, you're shopping at the place where they sell it. That's questionable. I don't think you should do that. What if they're doing that? And to that, I think Paul would say, okay, well, what's the necessity and the benefit of what you're doing? Well, you've got to go buy food to feed your family. Even if you don't buy that food, you've got to buy something to feed your family. So you prioritize, you recognize, look, I'm I'm not doing the thing that's sort of overtly confusing, but if somebody is hung up on the fact that I'm just shopping in the same place, but I need this food to feed my family, I think that's okay to prioritize that. But that's what discernment does. Discernment looks at all the factors tries to understand what does scripture call me to do and then how do I apply that in a situation that might be unclear? And that's what Paul offers us here. But when we look at edification in this passage, ultimately what we see is that edification looks past our personal freedoms to prioritize the well-being of those around me. Edification says, I might have the right to do something. I might be within my rights because I'm a Christian. I have freedom in Christ to do this. But it might not be good for the people around me. And if it's not good for the people around me, then I'm going to lay that right aside. I'm going to give that up for their benefit. And when we consider this definition of edification, this is what edification looks like. Well, there's no better example of laying down someone's personal freedom for the benefit of others than what Jesus did when he went to the cross. Jesus didn't have to lay down his rights and his freedoms to step into our world to suffer alongside human beings, and then to be labeled as a guilty man who was totally innocent, and then to go to the cross for our sins, that Jesus would say, hey, I I don't have to do this. I have the freedom not to do this, but, but I'm choosing for your benefit to lay that freedom aside. I will constrain myself to this, to go to the cross, to be punished, I will take your sin, you can give me your sin and you can have my righteousness, my perfection in exchange. If all you do is just trust that I did that for you, you can have that exchange and I'll go to the cross with your sin and I'll die and I'll take your sin to the grave because I'm gonna beat death, I'm gonna come back to life and in doing so, I'll offer you eternal life so that you and Jesus and all of us who trust in him can live in eternity together, reunited and reconciled to our creator. Why? Because Jesus laid down his personal freedoms for the benefit of all of us. And so Jesus is the perfect example of, of edification. And so uh, later, Paul in Ephesians 4, if you want to turn there, that's where we'll be next. Paul, Paul, if in Romans 14, if what he offered us was a scenario that's, that's not necessarily that uh, familiar to us. It's not something that we're going to find ourselves in every day. What he's going to talk about here is something that we'll engage in every day. It's how we speak. So so Paul is going to talk to us now about edification through our words. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, what he says is, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, I have to tell you, I am a person who I think, I'm especially encouraged by words. Like words that, that people offer me for encouragement, I, I hang on to them. And, and in fact, I'm, I'm so much that way that I will look for encouragement, maybe in words that people didn't even intend to be encouraged. Like I, that's, that's how much I, I look for that. And a good example of that is, is years ago uh, when, when Tom Rogers was our lead pastor here Tom was the type of guy that you just, you couldn't help but ad- admire. I mean, he, he was larger than life. He just had this, this personality that, that, was, that was attractive. You just were drawn to him, and then he just, he had everyone's respect. And, and for me, there was, there really, it was like my dad, Tom Rogers, like that was the level of respect and admiration uh, that I had for Tom. And so when we gathered for this meeting and, and Tom brings in a whiteboard where he's gonna ask for all of our ideas and our input, like, I wanna be somebody who says something that Tom likes, you know, that, that was what I wanted. And so when Tom started looking around the room specifically for someone, I'm thinking, oh, I hope it's me, right? You know, like, that's just what you're like, I hope he's looking for me. And so he's looking around the room and he finds me and he points at me and I'm like, here we go. And he goes, you, I heard you're the best writer on staff. And I was like, Tom, me? It's like, I mean, true. yeah, but obviously, but but wow. You know, because because back at the time, like I that, that's what I used to do as my creative outlet was I would, I would write, I would, I would post it, you know, for 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 people to read. And and so like that meant the world that in that moment, Tom was like, you're the best writer on staff. And I was just so encouraged. And Tom looked at me for a second and he saw my face light up. He saw that I was getting really excited about this, and he got a little bit confused, and he goes, Oh wait a minute! No, 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 not like that. I, I mean, you have the best handwriting. I was like, <laughs> that took the wind out of my sails a little bit. So, uh, so yeah, and it, it's true. I, I have I have good handwriting. You know, it's like not a skill that anybody like wants. But if you want something written legibly, I can do that. Uh, you know, Blake on staff. He and I are known as like the good handwriting guys. so That's you know whatever. Who cares? Um, but but Tom, you know, Tom didn't realize that's what he was doing in that moment. That's not what he meant. But but it was so significant that I thought that's what he was saying. I I mean, I'm looking for those words to hang on to. And, And the truth is that other times, Tom actually did that. I mean, there was one time I remember I did offer an idea at a meeting. And Tom went, that's a great idea. And I was like, yes. And he goes, that's such a good idea. I want you to tell that to the elders yourself. And man, that made me feel so, so good. I was so encouraged by those words. And you may not be somebody who considers yourself like especially, encouraged by words, that may not be a significant thing to you, but the truth is, words do have power. They have power for all of us, and they don't just have the power to encourage. They also have have destructive power, and we see that in James chapter 3, where, where James says that, that the tongue is like a fire that can burn down a forest. Words have the power to build up. They have the power to burn down, too, and so Paul says, don't let corrupting things come out of your mouth, and so as we did with with the last passage, looking at at what kind of actions and decisions can confuse people. Here, we need to ask, what kind of words are corrupting? And the Bible doesn't give an exhaustive list of words that we can and can't say. So the Bible's not gonna say, hey, you can say these words, these are approved words, here's the words you're not allowed to say, don't say any of these, okay, go. No, the Bible doesn't do that, but it does say a lot about our words. There are countless passages in the Bible about our words, many of them are in the Proverbs, But here's just a few of those passages. We get Ephesians 5, 4, let there be no filthiness or or foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. We see this in in Proverbs 4. Essentially he says, put put all these things away. Put away slander and obscene talk and then don't lie to one another. In Proverbs 4, put away crooked speech and put away devious talk, put devious talk far from you. And so, again, not an exhaustive list. This isn't everything that Bible says. And it's really not even telling us specifically what you can or can't say. It's talking about the kinds of things that we should or shouldn't say. And it still leaves room for interpretation or, or for doubt about what, what is meant here. And so I think it's helpful like we did with, with the passage in Romans to ask the question, is what I'm about to say going to confuse? Is it going to cause judgment? Is it going to cause somebody to sin? because, my words have a destructive power. And I will tell you, this is an area of my life that throughout the course of my, my Christian life, my Christian development, this has been an area that I've paid a special, a special attention to. That if you knew the young Christian Nolan, then you would have seen somebody who was looser with his words, who, who, who was you know, more willing to say certain things and make certain jokes, kind of regardless of who was around. And there came a time when I just started to realize that the Bible has a lot to say about my words and what I say, and I want to be more careful. And so there are certain words that I've just eliminated from my vocabulary. There are certain jokes and, and, and topics that when it goes there in a conversation, I just, I'm like, you know what? I'm just not gonna, I, I can't do that. I can't go there for the potential to confuse someone. I want to pay attention to whether or not, and I want to, I want to see who's around, like who am I talking to right now? Because my words have this power and I don't want to confuse someone. I don't want to cause them to judge. And I certainly don't want to tempt them towards sin. And so we have to be careful with our words. But, but what kind of words build up? And as Paul says, what kind of words give grace? In, in Colossians 4, he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Seasoned with salt. Let it be flavorful. Let it be rich and, and beneficial for those around you. And so if discernment asks, you know, which, what words, you know, could have a negative impact? H- how do my words have a negative impact on people? Then to edify means asking, how can I use my words to build someone up? How can I use my words to the benefit of those around me? And I would say there are at least two ways that we could get this wrong. There's at least two examples of ways that we try this and, and, and it's not a good thing. The first would be empty encouragement. Empty encouragement is like when you have something to say to somebody that, that it's about you, it's about making yourself feel better because you know what, check, I did it. I did, I did the encouragement thing today. I was, or, or I encouraged this many people. And so encu- empty encouragement is like a, a, a one-size-fits-all compliment where I could say it to one person, I could say the exact same thing to another totally different person and it, it wouldn't matter because it's just, it's empty. And ultimately, it's about me feeling better. It's an empty encouragement. The other thing I would say is flattery. Flattery is another way that we can get this wrong. And flattery, unlike encouragement, flattery might be more specific to the person that we're talking to. It it actually might take into consideration some unique things about them. And we're actually talking about that person. But flattery is still focused on ourselves because flattery is trying to make me look good in that person's eyes. I want that person to like me. I want that person to think more highly of me. And so empty encouragement and flattery, it's not true edifying words. It's ways that our words are still self-focused. And we need to avoid those as we try and edify. But ultimately what Paul offers us here is that edification, edification seeks opportunities to use our words to the benefit of others. And, And if he offers us, the, the way edification looks in our daily lives and the decisions that we make. And then he offers us edification in our words. Here in 1 Corinthians 14, if you wanna to turn to 1 Corinthians 14 now, in 1 Corinthians 14, he's gonna help us understand what edification looks like in our ministry and our worship. What does edification look like in our worship? And and here Paul is addressing an issue of, of Corporate worship. So 1 Corinthians 14, there's a lot of, hey, here's some practical, some practical knowledge about how to do church together. What does it look like when the, the church body should gather together in worship? So there's a lot of practical instruction here. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, is, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation Let all things be done for building up. Paul was speaking into a scenario where you had these new Christians and they're trying to gather and worship together, but there's a lot of disorder. There's some chaos involved in this. People are not sort of submitting to the structure of ordered worship. And Paul says worship needs to be ordered. He talks about discerning. He talks about how you need to look around at the people that are there and how what you're doing is going to impact them. There's gonna be some non-believers there. There's gonna be some believers there and it's gonna impact them differently. What you're doing and this sort of disordered, chaotic worship is gonna be confusing. And so our worship needs to have order because without order, everyone's just pursuing their own agenda. They're worshiping according to their own tastes and desires. And Paul says, we shouldn't do that. That doesn't serve the people around you. And I think that too is a little counterintuitive because we show up to church every Sunday morning and I think a lot of times we show up with the thought of, well, how is this going to help me? How is this going to build me up? How is this going to benefit me? And Paul says that shouldn't be our attitude when we gather in worship. Actually, what we should be doing is we should be edifying one another in our worship, that how we worship impacts other people and we need to consider that. And so, I think what Paul offers us elsewhere in this this epistle is that, hey, you have gifts, and the church needs your gifts. So what are your gifts? What What are the things that God has uniquely given you? What passions do you have that could serve the church? And then how could they serve the church? What opportunities are there? Again, Paul gives this instruction for ordered worship. Worship isn't supposed to be random and chaotic and just show up and do it however you want to. Paul says there is structure to how we do worship. And within the context of that structure, where are you gifted and how can you serve? Jesus said that the world would know us as his disciples by how we treat one another. And that includes how we build one another up, how we edify one another. And so that's how the church can effectively be the body, the hands and feet of Jesus. It's how we can be a light in a dark world and show people his love and his grace. And so when it comes to our worship, edification, edification offers our gifts and our resources to build up the church. That's edifying in our worship and in our ministry. And so what we've seen so far is that Paul offers us these these three ways that edification plays out. In our lives and the decisions that we make, edification looks past our personal freedoms to prioritize the well-being of those around me. With our words, edification seeks opportunities to use our words to the benefit of others. And when we gather in worship or we minister to other people, edification offers our gifts and our resources to build up the church. But then we ask, how does this play out? How do I do this? What steps can I take to move into this this lifestyle of edifying one another. And as we've talked about in the previous lessons in this series, is it starts with abiding in Christ. It has to. We can't do anything apart from him. And you might be able to do some good things. You might be able to do some productive things on your own without Jesus, but you'll never be able to do what you could do when you're abiding in Christ. We need to walk with him. We can do nothing apart from him. And when we walk with Jesus, we become more like him. We become more like him and our attention starts to go to the things that he wants us to see, starts to look for the needs of other people. And so we need to abide in him because we can't do this on our own. And so with that, then we need to take steps to examine ourselves and then to orient our heart towards building others up. Because we begin in a default mode because of our sin nature. Our default mode is that we are aimed towards selfishness. We are oriented in the direction of worrying about how everything affects me. That's my main concern most of the time. That's just default mode because of my sin nature. So I need to reorient myself from default on on how things affect me. I need to reorient towards people, towards others. And so I've got to take those steps to examine myself. So that begins with this. Ask yourself, how much do I prioritize building up others rather than myself? Anytime we want to change something, we need to take stock of where we are. And I think we need to recognize all of us are guilty of this. It's not unique to you or to me. We're all guilty of of having this orientation towards selfishness. And so we we need to look at that. Okay, where does that play out? How do I do this? How am I oriented towards focusing on myself and how things mostly are about me, right? And so I need to to ask myself that. And secondly, again, I need to ask God, God, I can't do this on my own. Romans 7 says, look, when we try and do things by the power of our own will in our flesh, even when we try to do good things, we can't do the things that we know we should, that's the weakness of our flesh. And we can only do them when we look at God and we go, God, will you empower me by your spirit that I can seek to build others up? I can't do it on my own. I could try. Occasionally, I'll get it right. You know, I'll, I'll do some good things. I'm not saying we can't do anything good. I'll do some good things, but I can't do ultimately what I'm called to do to the full potential that God has given me if I'm not living by the spirit. And so I ask God, God, will you empower me to this? Will you help me do this? And then we wanna use our words as a way to build others up. We need to seek to to use our words to the benefit of others as often as we can. And so again, in self-examination, we ask a question like, hey, how might my words negatively impact those around me? If my words have have a devastating and a destructive power, where will that most likely play out? What kind of things that I say are most likely to hurt someone, are most likely to break down? I need to pay attention to that, how my words have a negative impact. And on the flip side, how can my words build them up? What opportunities do I have to build someone up with what I say? And we consider the power that our words have and the context where they have the most power And look, you're going to encounter and and interact with people throughout your day, throughout your week, and, and there's going to be a lot less power in certain situations. Your words won't have as much power. It has power, but not as much in certain situations where there are places, there are situations, there are people for whom your words have significant impact, no matter what they are. And those types of people, I think, for me, I think about the fact that I'm a father and I have kids. And my kids hang on my words. Even if I am casual, whatever I'm saying, I don't, I'm not thinking about it. My kids hang on my words because I'm their dad. I need to consider that. My wife, my words have huge power in the life of my wife. They're supposed to, I'm her husband. That's, that's how it's designed, but I need to know that. I need to pay close attention to that. I need to be careful with those words. If you're, you, have, you have parents, you're, you're, it goes the other direction too. Your parents, your words have significant impact on them. What you say has an impact on them. Your close friends, obviously, your words have an impact in the lives of your friends. Wherever you work, especially if you're a boss, you have people that work under you, those words matter. They matter. You have significant power in your words, and we need to consider how we use our words, how our words are destructive, and how we could use them to build others up. Finally, We need to use our gifts. Use your gifts, your time, and your resources for the building up of the church. And again, we ask the questions, what what are my gifts and my passions? How did God create me uniquely with these strengths and these gifts that he's given me? What did he make me for? We take stock of that, and then we, we look. Okay, where are those opportunities? How can I use those? We've talked about that a lot from the pulpit lately, of the opportunities at Grace Church. But what opportunities exist in, in church? In the context of ordered worship, in the gathered church, the body of Christ, where can I use these gifts? That's what I'm made to do, so where can I do that? And just to connect this to the previous point about our words, I, I, would, I would say, as we think about our gifts and our passions, there's a lot of people in this room that have probably taken a spiritual gifts inventory test. Right? You may have sit, sat down at a computer or with a piece of paper and gone through and answered some questions And I'm not against those. I'm not going to stand here and tell you you shouldn't do that. But I think they have a a limited value. I I think that we can sit down at a test and we can answer certain ways. We can have our own biases about what we think about ourselves or what we want to think about ourselves and we'll answer in certain ways. I want my gift to be this, so I'll answer this way. We can do that a little bit. And that test doesn't know us. (laughs) But what we can do is we can talk to somebody who knows us. And I have found there is so much more value in finding out what my gifts are in talking to somebody that knows me, somebody that I trust, somebody that I believe has wisdom, who's mature in their faith. I, I, some of the most encouraging words I've ever heard were from somebody who knew me very well, was a spiritual mentor to me, somebody who discipled me, who looked at me and said, hey, here's what I think you're good at. I've watched you, I've observed you in ministry settings, I think you're good at these things. I think you should pursue that. I think you should find ways to use those. Those are powerful words. You could seek out somebody like that in your life who knows me well, who sees me and, and understands what I am good at and could speak into that. And the same is true in the, uh, in the other direction. You could be that person for someone else. When you consider what, what power your words can have to build someone up, you could be the person who looks at somebody and, and you know them really well You've lived life with them. You've observed them in these different scenarios. And you can say, hey, I think you're really good at this. I watched you do this, and I saw the impact that it had. And I just wanted to tell you, I think that's great, and I think you should pursue that more. I think you should do that as often as you can. I think there's ways you can do that in our church. Our church needs it. And that's that's what Paul says about our spiritual gifts, is that we all have them. We all have gifts. And when you're not using them for the benefit of the church, the church hurts. There's a deficit there. We need your gifts. We need what God gave you to make us better as a church family. And so consider how you have those gifts. Consider how you can affirm that in someone else. Justo Galejo Martinez was born in 1925. He grew up as a farmer in Spain. His mother instilled in him a very strong Catholic faith. In 1961, in his hometown of Mejorada del Campo, Justo decided he wanted to build something. He wanted to build a cathedral. So he set out to build this cathedral, and aside from the fact that it had one singular builder, Justo, one of the unique things about it was that it was going to be made entirely out of junk, <laughs> recycled materials, whatever he could find, whatever people in town would donate, whatever the construction companies in town would give him to build this cathedral. For over 60 years, Justo worked day in and day out to build this cathedral. He sold his house, pretty much all of his possessions to dedicate himself to that work. And in a 2016 interview at the age of 85, while he was still in the process of building this cathedral, Justo said the following, It is impossible that I finish this cathedral in my lifetime because there is still so much to do. I hope that after I die, this cathedral, well, I'm leaving it to the divine hand. I don't know how far it will go. It's better that God take charge. Justo knew the importance of building something. And what he was building wasn't about himself, wasn't for himself, He knew that it was worth the time and the energy and the dedication to invest in something bigger than himself that would outlast his life. And what I love about his perspective is just that he did not need to see to the end to know that it was worthwhile. Didn't need to see the finished product. He realized that he would never see the finished product. And in November of 2021, Justo died. And he left his cathedral to an organization called Messengers of Peace, who pledged to finish the work that Justo started. When he died, this is what it it looked like. This is what it looks like today. 86,000 square feet of an unfinished yet awe-inspiring cathedral built by one man in his two hands. It's incredible. Now imagine what your life would look like if you had Justo's perspective when it comes to building up others. What would it do to your relationships? What what, what kind of impact would you have on people? And more importantly, imagine what it would look like for a church to be filled with people dedicated to building up one another. What would those bonds look like? How would they collectively shape their community? How would they show the people around them the sacrificial love and grace of Jesus? Let's aim to be that kind of a church, the kind of church that God calls us to be when we build one another up.
0: You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast, published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.